Greetings ladies and managers, and welcome to this latest video for Retreat Hell, taken from the subreddit HFY. The link to the original is down below, and if you enjoy the story, head over there and let the author know. If you wish to support this channel, there are many ways to do so, also, strangely enough, listed down below. Don't forget to subscribe, or we'll have a platoon of angry cat-like creatures attacking you in your sleep. Anyways, on to the sci-fi. I would like to give a quick thanks to our Tier 5 channel members and patrons. Fallen Angel Buzz Killington Thank you, again. Now on to the story. Retreat Hell, Chapter 14, Part 1 Forward at Double Time March! The familiar sound of feet hitting the ground in time mostly covered the muted grumbles and complaints of pre-dawn light. Here we go again! Here we go again! Same old song again! Same old song again! Do they ever just not run? Rin thought to himself as he jogged along in formation with Echo Company. The other Kishmen were distributed amongst their assigned squads for the battalion's formation run. Their cadences are actually kind of fun, but this running spoils it. He panted hard as they stormed around the base. Rapid construction was happening everywhere. An unending stream of troops, equipment, and supplies poured through the portal in a mind-boggling quantities. At an unbelievable pace. They ran past cleared and flattened lots that had been stands of trees the day before. Previously cleared lots had new tents or buildings popping up overnight, or were being filled with lines of vehicles or rows upon rows of supplies stacked on wooden pallets. Human aircraft rumbled overhead as they circled back to the older buildings that they had constructed the week before. His ears perked up when he realized where they were and his tail twitched in excited relief when their barracks came into view. Bathed in the light of the earth's sun just starting to crest on the horizon, on the other side of the portal. We're almost done, he thought, his tongue lolling a bit as he smiled. Maybe I won't die today, after all. He grinned when they rounded the last corner and faltered as they passed through the front of their barracks without slowing. What? Oh, uh, where, where are we going? The head of the collar made a turn, heading down the road that led away from the end point of their turn. Why? Why are they doing this? He whined, glancing over his shoulder at the retreating barracks. The marine behind chuckled, Head down and drive on, devil dog. Ears drooping, Ren faced front and drove on. Two more rounds passed the barracks, and the marines were called to a halt. Artificers, fall out, Barakas called, making sure the order was passed down the line. Medical says that's all you get to run in a day. Rin stumbled out of formation, tongue lolling as he resisted the urge to fall to the ground, even as some of his compatriots did just that. Recover, clean yourselves up, and be in conference hall 8 by 0800. Rin nodded alongside Duke Shine, and only other Kishmen still standing. Barakas turned to the humans. Marines! We've still got a run to finish. Her sergeants, get a moving! 
A series of groans and shouted orders later, and the battalion stormed away in a cloud of dust. Ishai panted as he watched them go, his ears drooping with exhaustion. They run a fast march every day. He shook his head. Then, with a visible exertion of will, he lifted his ears and turned to his countrymen. Let's get them up. We have an important conference today. Yes, your grace. Rin yipped around his own pants. He was too tired to lift his own ears past the worn-out sag. Fortunately, the humans had not left them completely alone. A pair of corpsmen moved about the stricken Kishman, distributing chilled bottles of colored, flavored water and taking vitals. Satisfied that they weren't about to die from exhaustion, despite the Kishman's own certainty on the matter, the corpsmen helped them to their feet, whining and groaning as their muscles started to stiffen. They hobbled into the respective barracks. Man, there is more stars in here than um, one of them uh, astrology on them. Um, stargazing things, Kowalski muttered, leaning back in his chair to get a little bit further away from the brass gathering in the room. Observatory, brah. Yeah, that. Bradford shook her head. Stick with what you know, Kowalski, and keep a goddamn mouth shut. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Kowalski, she whispered. Yes, ma'am. She glared at him, but knew that it was a battle that she couldn't win. Instead, she said nothing and settled into her chair. Conference Hall 8 was basically just an empty prefab with a bunch of classroom-style desk-chair combos arranged in a rough circle around the center of the room. Judging by the battle condition of some of these things, and the fact that most of them have old chewing gum stuck all over the bottoms of them, they were probably hauled in from some local school. Dude, General Langston just walked in with more stars in tow than a summer blockbuster, Kimber muttered. Why the frick are we here? Do we have everyone? Langston asked his aide, receiving a nod in return. All right, everyone. He spoke, his voice carrying across the room. Let's get started. He glanced around at the people, dispersed across the dense cluster of desks and scoffed. You know, when I asked my staff to get this type of chair for this meeting, I told them to get as many as they could get their hands on. He shook his head. They went and got me way more than I needed. His mouth twisted into a sardonic grin. Figures, the stuff we don't need to win a war, we have in spades. But anything you need to fight and win, nowhere to be found. He threw his hands up and a short bark of laugh, eliciting a chuckle from those around the room. He waved his hand towards where he stood in the center of the circle. Bring it in and tighten it up so that we don't have to shout across the room. A flurry of screeches and scrapes followed as several people shifted to new desks, and a few opted to scoot their current seats to new positions. Bradford exchanged glances with his squadmates as the Kishman nobles moved closer to the front. They all adopted to stay put in their chairs, along one of the walls. So did the enlisted Kishman. All right, he said once everyone had settled, his voice carrying across the room at nearly the same volume. There are too many of us here to waste time going around the room introducing ourselves, and frankly, right now... I don't care. He looked about the room, his hands on his hips, 
high-boiling senior officers and NCOs of every branch of the U.S. military. This is as much a split-boiling session as anything else, and I don't care who you are. If you've got a good idea or inputs, I want to hear them. He started pacing back and forth in a small, open area at the center of the circle, like a caged panther. He's not one who can sit idle for very long, Bradford noted. We now have solid data on the capabilities of our Alban enemies and the capabilities of the regular troops, artillery, and artificers of the Ganlan Royal Host. He held up a hand, counting off on his fingers. Our objectives with this meeting are to use that information to identify Elven capabilities that we are particularly vulnerable to, ways to counter them, Elven vulnerabilities that we can exploit, ways in which we can integrate artificer capabilities to benefit our units and doctrine, and how best to utilize the existing regular troops of the royal host. He turned, pacing back to the other side of the cleared area. I am primarily interested in tactics, strategies, and policies that we can enact in the immediate future and over the short to mid-term. I am more concerned with what we can do now than what we might be able to do six months to a year from now. He pointed at the deck, then waved at the bulkhead to emphasize his point. Then he brought both arms back over to point at something next to his left hip. Though we still need to leave ourselves room to maneuver when we get to that point. He looked about the room, half sitting on the corner of an empty desk and opening his arms to the ground. So, uh, what have we got? A two-star army general leaned forward. What is the benefit of integration in the first place? Is there even a utility here? How can troops armed with pikes and glorified catapults support us at all? We can train them and equip them with modern weapons and equipment, like we did with the Iraq and Afghanistan. Another general spoke up. They won't compare to our regular forces, but even with rudimentary training and basic equipment, the 20,000 troops that they managed to hang on to can make a good holding and rear guard force. Putting them to that use is already a plan of the Operation Bulldog. Isn't their army scattered all over the place, with lots of wounded? A full bird asked. Less wounded than you would think, a second general said. Seems like most got cut down on the field or ran away. Not much in between. The couple thousand that we do have too wounded to fight didn't get past their camp. They've got over 20,000 troops in camp now, and a report I saw this morning said that they think that they have another 10,000 to 15,000 on top of that, scattered about and can muster back up. And that doesn't even count the rest of the army stationed elsewhere, or other troops that they're trying to raise. 30,000 organized veteran troops is a hell of a lot more than we started with in Iraq, an army sergeant major said. And they can't need any more instruction on firearms than some of the Iraqis did, he added, owning a few chuckles from around the room. Probably want to go with M16s and M4s of AKs, the Air Force Lieutenant Colonel said. We've got plenty of them, and it simplifies logistics. He received several nods and murmurs of agreement. Dreadox, just up the street, the Air Force General said. We could start shipping them up there for training. 
So we equip the army with guns so that they can hold the rear and hold the country when their war's over and we pull out. The first two-star said, They'll still need transport to keep up, so either we truck him around or we also give him trucks and teach him how to drive. That's a lot of giving on our part, as well as carrying the bulk of the war effort. What do we get in return? That's more a question for politicians, Dad. Don't you think? Navy Two-Star asked. It's logistics, General Stan grunted back, a basic cost-benefit analysis. And a question that we have to factor in, Langstorm said, standing up and turning to Yushai. Much as I hate giving politicians a say in tactical and strategic planning, they get to vote on this one. If we're going to equip your troops with our weapons, we're going to have to give the politicians something to justify the expense. Beyond winning the war. I am not empowered to negotiate such trade deals, Yushai said, pausing as one of the Langstrom's aides translated for most of the room. But I am sure there are a lot of resources and knowledge that the kingdom can provide for such an exchange. We'll leave the negotiations to the politicians, Langstorm said. Well, that should be enough of a bone to throw them. They're already salivating over trade deals for magic and resources. I'm more interested in what their artifices can do with our units, a three-star marine said. He looked familiar, and as he turned in his seat to face the Kishman, Radford recognized him from various chain-of-command photo trees. That's Lieutenant General Eckhart, the CEO of the entire Marine expedition. Those shields that they can put up are pretty damned impressive, and the report I read from the battle at Backstreet One had a single artificer deflecting heavy artillery from one of their big towers. Put them in a Humvee or an LAV, and they can shrug off fire like an Abrams. Most of our artificers are not nearly as talented at shield casting as second artificer Ayat, Yishai said, breaking an ear at Run. But shielding your vehicles, he said in a heavy accented English, is certainly within our artificers' capabilities. So that's definitely something to pursue, Langstrom said, nodding at one of the aides who was already jotting down notes. We've already got armor that can stop small arms fire, General Stan interjected. A shield that can stop heavy artillery would be great, but if most of them can't do it, is the training and efforts to embed them in our units going to be worthwhile? He shook his head. They've got some neat tricks, I'll grant you, but I don't think a time and expense in training and equipping them will be worthwhile. We'd be better off putting that time into resources, into putting more of our own troops into the fight and attacking sooner. He's got a point, an Air Force general said. Integration takes time. The more time we focus on that as a strategy, the longer it takes us to go on the offensive. Operation Bulldog already has our forces spearheading the assault. Once we get our logistics situation sorted, we're losing enough time with that as it is, and we have no idea what kind of strategic depth of force the owls really have. If we want to press ahead and keep them on the back foot, we can't afford to wait any longer than we absolutely have to before going on the offensive. Several heads nodded in agreement, or at least understanding around the room. Shields aren't all they can do, sir, Bradford said, surprised that she had spoken up, and immediately regretting it as all eyes in the room turned to her. 
She balanced as she came under the scrutiny of most of the command elements in the entire theater. Speak up, Sergeant, Langstrom said, the barest hint of amused smile at the corner of his mouth. I asked for you and your squad to be here for a reason. Yes, sir, she said, swallowing. Most of the looks she got were neutral, but a few were dismissive or critical. Her squad looked at her with a mix of reverence and horror. She cleared her throat. On one of the most immediate things they can do is disrupt the Elven invisibility spells. We can see they're blending on thermals, but we don't have the counter for the true invisibility. I was wondering when someone was going to bring that up, Langstrom said. He glanced around at the room. The sergeant is right. The lab coats are all working hard and looking for a counter that we can deploy. But aside from our military working dogs, so far they're all drawing up blanks. Dogs will only be able to help so much on the battlefield. The Navy Master Chief spoke up. We put them to great use in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I owe my life to a few of them. But they're not going to be as much help as an Abrams crew or an Apache in the air. And there's only so much a dog can do in the chaos of a battlefield. So, we invent a few in each unit for invisibility detection and supplement our canine units, General Stad said. That's still not a case for large-scale integration. Respectfully, sir, that's not even the most important thing. All eyes turned to Bradford once more. Some in particular carried a measure of hostility. She swallowed it again. Ayat was invaluable because he knows how the elves fight. He knows what to expect from them, what they're capable of, what tricks they'll pull, and how they counter them. He saved my entire battalion from an elven ambush, not just because he could disrupt the invisibility. That wouldn't have meant a damn thing if he hadn't realized why the elven mage towers had stopped firing on our position. She took another breath. We just got here, sir. They've been fighting these owls for seven years. Sergeant Bradford is right, Colonel Michaels said, and she was immensely glad for his support. We brought the technology and firepower the owls did not expect, and it gives us a distinct advantage. But we've had all of two whole engagements with them, and none of us know what we can expect the owls to do or bring to the field in response. He nodded at Yushai and the other Kishman nobles. Except for them. Their knowledge and experience is invaluable. And their artifices can do more than just shields and anti-invisibility. Major Volchik spoke up. The range demonstration they put on last week was pretty damned impressive. Most shots don't hit as hard as an M16, and they can't compete at a long range. But at typical engagement ranges, they work well enough against the targets we'll be facing. They can also enhance our weapons and armor to be even more effective. A single artificer is more than just a shield or an intelligence asset. They are a force multiplier. Until they run out of ammo, another army general spoke up. That's been one of the army's biggest problems, hasn't it? Their supply of mana crystals, he frowned, clearly still adjusting to saying those words in a serious context. I know we captured a large stockpile from the elves in our last engagement, but we can't rely on capturing enemy supplies. If the Ganon army has trouble supplying their own forces, how are they going to be able to supply units embedded in our forces? Could we make our own? The Air Force colonel asked. Hook up a generator to some device that can convert electricity into mana. 
Rin's ears twitch, but Yishai beat him to answering that question. That is something that is possible in theory. We can convert mana into lightning. It should be possible to convert lightning back into mana. But none of our experiments have succeeded, he paused. Some of them ended rather famously in disaster. Twenty years ago, one of the professors of Yangshanai blew up the top of the southwestern tower made an experiment trying to convert lightning bolts into mana, Ren whispered to Bradford. Since then, those experiments have been forbidden on the campus grounds. Our own eggheads are working on that. If that's possible, it'll lead to all manner of new technologies and weapons. But it's not something that we have now, or that we're likely to have tomorrow. Langstrom shook his head and made the motion for crumpling something into a ball and tossing it away. Let's put that in the future concerns bucket and add mana supply logistics to our near future concerns. Not an immediate thing to consider, but what about the possibility of magically enhanced artillery shells? One of the army generals spoke up. He was close enough that she could tell that the unit insignia was from some kind of artillery regiment, though she couldn't make out which specific unit. The subject bounced around the room with Yushai and Ayan supplying some details on the Kishman manufacturing capabilities, but was ultimately thrown into the future concerns bucket. The time for development, testing, and manufacturing was outside the window Langstrom was interested in. The conversation immediately jumped into the possibility of mounting Kishman direct fire artillery on American armored vehicles. Volchek provided a detailed analysis and noted that the potential was there, but the conventional U.S. weaponry was more powerful at present. If we could tap their guns into their generator and directly convert electrical energy into mana, however, they might well give the main gun on the Abrams a run for its money. Another future concern, then, Langstrom said. Yes, Volchek nodded. Though their current artillery shouldn't be discounted, it doesn't have the range for modern artillery, and our equivalents are better, but they would still be a threat on a modern battlefield. Against the Alps, while I'd still prefer a U.S. armor platoon, a Gandlin artillery battery can still be a lot of use, especially if combined with modern equipment. Noted. Langstrom said. He turned to three-star army general. Frank, sounds like a job for your boys to figure out. General Frank nodded. Now get some men on it. So it sounds like a foundation of Operation Bulldog is still the best path we can take, Langstrom said, after further discussion of logistics and regular army equipment options. Two five will continue their training and study exercises with the Kishman artifices, while we sort out the logistics nightmare. In the meantime, we'll start standing up training programs for the regular Gandalin army. Should be pretty easy. We've got plenty of experts in the field from Iraq and Afghanistan. We'll train them on M16s and standard US equipment, and start equipping and pairing them up with mechanized army reserve units for transport once the politicians short the shit out. He glanced at his watch and frowned. I wish we had more time to sort this shit out. We'll have to wrap it up here. He stood up from the desktop that he'd been sitting on. If anyone has any further inputs or concerns, forward them to my office. He looked at General Eckhart. Brad, I want your men to put together a detailed plan for augmentation of regular marines and army units with Kishman artifices. 
based on two fives efforts. It might not be fully implemented right away, but I want it ready to go ASAP. I put it on your desk by the end of the week, Eckhart noted. Radford saw Michaels briefly frown before it pressed it. Three guesses who will actually be writing that plan. Also, Duke, you're shy. Langstrom turned to the Kishman. We've managed to capture an elven spy who slipped through the portal. All of the Kishman's ears shut up, fixed on the journal, along with the most of the eyes in the room. Alive, Kishai asked. Yes, alive, Langstrom said. He grimaced. He managed to kill a few people before we were able to catch him, but we captured him alive. Right now, we have him sedated, so he can't pull any magical suicide bullcrap. But if your people have any advice or techniques for holding an elven prisoner, we'd be more than happy to share any information we're able to glean from him. Yes, of course, Yishai said. There are a few tonics that can suppress the magical abilities, or defocus the mind enough to make spell construction all but impossible. I'll order a supply of them to be delivered immediately, and pen a letter to Lord General Yangri, requesting further assistance at once. Outstanding, Langstrom said. I'll send an aide over with additional details. He glanced about the room. Ladies, gentlemen, thank you for coming. Thanks for your import. Let's get to work. Attention on deck, called one of the junior officers at the edge of the room. Carry on, Langstrom said as he departed. With a sigh of relief, Radford stood and stretched along with the rest of the second squad, while the bra started footing out of the room, though a few stopped to mingle and discuss various top brass matters. Thank the gods, Tetya sighed, closed his eyes as he twisted his head from side to side, eliciting a few barely audible pops. Above and below, I was right beside myself with boredom there. Least they could have done us liven things up with a bit of tail show for us, eh, Yang Yad? He said, elbowing the Kishman next to him. Yin Yad was not the Kishman next to him, however. Night Captain Anyo sneered down his short snout, looking for all the world like a pointy-nosed cat who just got sprayed with water. Second Artificer Jetya, he snapped. You are representing His Majesty's royal host before an esteemed ally. You will comport yourself accordingly. Is that understood? Yes, my lord, Tetya said, snapping to attention. Frankly, second artificer, your behave and reverie have been remarkably unbecoming of a member of the royal host. Do you understand this, second artificer, Tetya? Yes, my lord, but, um... He broke from attention to scratch the bass horn, then briefly tugged at his ear. Technically, I'm not a member of the royal host. You see, um, my line, we're irregulars, and we never were officially integrated into the host. Anya flicked his ears in disgust. Goddamned levies! He took a deep breath, his ears returning to the regular regal sweep. Well, second artificer, you are part of the royal host now, and you will adjust your behavior to be more appropriate. Is that understood, Second Artificer? Yes, my lord, Tetya said, snapping back to attention. As you say, my lord. The night captain gave him a final, disgusted look, then turned away. Good! Now get out of my sight! Right away, my lord, Tetya said, giving him a crisp bow. 
he immediately made himself scarce. The Marines all glanced at each other at the exchange, which had drawn a fair amount of attention from around the room. Kowalski whispered, his eyebrows high, his mouth puckered tight. Mommy just slapped Daddy at the dinner table. Bradford rolled her eyes. Come on, let's get the frick out of here before any of you fricks do something stupid too. What are you working on? Bradford asked, sitting down on her cot next to Rin. She began putting off her boots. He swung an ear to face her, but kept most of his attention on the fine notebook and ballpoint pen that he'd been given. It's a marching song, he said, pausing to gnaw the end of the pen while he hummed a tune under his breath. I'm trying to work out the words for it in English. Oh, she said, leaning over to eye his notes before digging into her pack. Don't let First Sergeant Catry catch wind of it. He'll make you sing it during formation run. Rin rolled an ear at her. It helps me learn English, in case we lose our translation spell, and so you don't always have to translate for me. By all means, then, she said, pulling out a stiff bristled brush. Don't let me interrupt you. He flicked his ear in amusement and jotted down a few more words. Barbershop's open, Kimber said, holding up his buzzing device that he had used to shave his head with Dubois' help. Deployment cuts are half price. Bryn quirked an ear as most of the squad started lining up. Bradford looked up from her boots that was brushing, smoked, and went back to cleaning the day's grime. Edison was the first in line and Kimmer threw a sheet around him once and sat in the empty bucket. What's this all about? Bryn asked, watching as Kimber expertly trimmed what little hair Edison had off. Old military cord tradition, Bradford said, inspecting her boot before setting it down next to its mate. She pulled her pack out from under her rack and dug out a heavy, hard-bound book. New guys in the first deployment shaved their head. She flipped the book open on a small but sturdy-looking bookmark and settled back on her back. No idea where it comes from. Oh, Brid said, watching in fascination as the next marine sat down and had his hair shaved off, his notebook momentarily forgotten. He turned an ear back towards Bradford. Do you have to shave your hair? Already did it. Davies, Dubois, and I caught the last quarter of the last deployment in Afghanistan. Shave my head the day I reported. She flipped the page. Kimber just missed it. He technically should have been there for the last two weeks of deployment, but they held him up stateside until the battalion came back over. Oh, he said, watching as more and more hair piled on the floor. For a brief moment, he imagined all of his fur being shaved off and shuddered in horror. Rub my head for luck, Jabs, Edison said, bouncing by with a towel and toiletries kit. He shoved his face in front of a book. Oh, frick off, she said, shoving him away before closing the book and taking a swing at him. Ah, help, she's turning her knowledge into a weapon. He danced away, but not before catching a glancing blow. Ah, he said, falling to the ground dramatically. Foil by thermodynamics once again. Go freaking shower, she laughed, rolling back over and reopening her book. Yes, ma'am. She sighed, pointedly ignoring him as he bounced back to his feet and sauntered into the head. Rin tittered a laugh, earning him an amused glare from Bradford. Bald head train, Samson called out, parading around the room with Stephens and Gomez following close behind. 
each holding the hips and man in front of him. They were all stripped to the t-shirts and boxes, and Gomez was shirtless. Chugga, 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 choo, choo. Samson called out as the Marines bobbed their heads up and down in alternating rhythm. Chugga, 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 choo, choo. His barbering work done, Kimber threw the sheet over his head, putting an extra deep voice. And now I've become every man's worst nightmare. He popped his head out of the sheet, keeping it tucked around his neck, switching to a high-pitched, nasally voice. I'm a broken condom. <laughs> God damn it, Bradford sighed, closing her book and sitting up to put it away. She stuffed it back into her bag, but Run could tell that she was using the action to cover a smile and a silent laughter. Are all humans as crazy? he asked, his ears back, as Gomez slowly took an exaggerated power stance in front of Kowalski, spitting out words that didn't translate. Ah, just the men, she said. Us women, perfectly, 100% stable and sane. Always. Rin swung an ear towards her, cocked a low angle, broadcasting an absolute disbelief. Don't you point your ear at me like that, she said, chuckling. Ooh, cowbunga, Gomez shouted and fought jump tackling Kowalski, triggering another group wrestling match. That's not, uh, you know what, um, never mind. She shook her head. Chaos demons, Rin muttered under his breath, glancing back down at his notebook. Bradford snorted. Truth. She shook her head. On another note, speaking of differences between men and women, she pulled a momentary frown. And now that Tatya's not around, how do you Keshman women different from men? Looking up, he turned to Bradford, pausing to consider how to answer that question. One ear remained locked on the resting match. I mean, I've gathered from both you and Tatya that there are a lot of similarities between human and Keshman women, but how similar are we actually? That brought the full attention of both his ears and his mouth working open a little as he tried to figure out how to respond to that field of traps. She laughed. Sorry, I didn't mean to make that awkward. She took a breath and put on a more serious face. But seriously, though, what a Keshman woman like. Well, um... Rin tugged at his horn. There, um... He frowned, flicking his ears at the other marines and then back to her. Physically, the, the difference between Kishman men and women is, isn't that much difference than the difference between a human men and woman, except maybe not as pronounced. He held up his hands, passing them over each other. The, the, there is more overlap in range of normal sizes, I think. He rolled his ears. At, at least from what I've seen, he paused. And, um, um... Above and below, this could get terribly inappropriate, terribly quickly. Kishwin women have, um, arrangements, he gestured in the air, then immediately regretted it, that are, um, similar to, uh, that is, uh, um, they've got boobs and wide childbearing hips. She gave him an amused smirk. He worked his mouth for a moment, glancing around the room, looking for something that wasn't her, uh, arrangements, before settling on her eyes with a defeated sag in his ears. Yes, that. Similar proportions. 36, 24, 36, Edison commented, sauntering back out the shower, 
waving his hands in an hourglass figure before winking at both of them and putting a finger on the lips while spinning his damp towel into a twist. Yes, he said, gladly distracted by Edison's elaborate sneaking. She chuckled, shaking her head. Is that it? Well, no, he said, turning back to Bradford. Women tend to have thinner, more lithe tails, though depending on how their fur is, they can be difficult to spot. He tapped his horns. And women don't have long horns. They have horns, but they're only buttons, only a finger or two long. Oh, she tilted her head. Huh, she smoked. So from the neck up, all of those boys over there, she nodded at the wrestling pile of marines, looked pretty damn effeminate from a Kishman perspective. He chuckled, pricking his ears in amusement. Yeah, now that I think about it, they kind of do. Edison had finally snuck into position, and with a loud crack, he snapped an unidentified marine in the ass. Ah! Somebody screamed in an unidentifiably high pitch. Frick! The dog pile fell apart as Edison lay into them with his towel, though he was quickly tackled and disarmed. Kimber escaped the dog pile and returned to the bucket to retrieve his clippers. He started gathering things up to put them away and then noticed Rin and Bradford watching the group. He looked down at the clippers and then back at Rin with a downright evil smile. Hey, Shields, you want to join the tradition? Rin's eyes went wide and his ears straight up in alarm. Gods, no. Yeah, join us. Grandy Mountain, Charlie. Wait, wait, wrong meme. Guys, he's got more time in country than the entire rest of the squad combined, Bradford said, coming to his defense, to his immediate relief. He doesn't need to shave anything. One of us, Edison said, starting a slow chart as he stalked towards Rin. One of us, Gomez joined in. Rin immediately stood up and started backing away. You think you're ouching me with the, uh, your bishop's and the arse first? No, brah, not the floof, Stephen said, jumping into the air. Shave him, Davies said, joining the mob. Defend the floof, Kowalski cried, jumping up beside Stephen's. Shave the witch, Edison cried. Shave the witch. Defenders of the floof, unite, Bradford cried, jumping in front of Run as Kimber, Davies, Edison, Samson, and Gomez all started chanting. Shave the witch! Shave the witch! Dubois and Muller quickly rallied to their cause as the shapers advanced. Rin bolted, his pen and notebook abandoned, and a general melee ensued. He dodged several opponents until at some point he squared off against Kimber and his buzzing machine of woe. Cackling maniacally, Kimber chased him around the barracks for several minutes before cornering him. Kimber gave him a fake evil laugh and moved in for the shave. Runners faked left, then dodged right, hitting him right in the mild spark in the leg. Ah, frick, not again! Kimber fell, knocking over the cot and rolling onto the ground. His clippers forgotten. I took three hours to wear off last time. Run took the opportunity to make good on his escape, hopping across several cots to rejoin his side. Hopping off the last cot next to Bradford, he found that the melee was finished. With his side, the victors. All right, you fricks, that was fun, Bradford said, chuckling as she caught her breath. 
but it's time to clean this mess up and go to bed. She gave Rin a smile and patted him on the back. Yes, Mom, Kowalski said, turning to start writing and upturned cot. Frick you, Kowalski, she said with a weary shake of her head. Yes, Mom, the entire squad echoed back. End of part one. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.